My name's Jacqueline. I'm an alcoholic. And by the grace of God and this fellowship and you people, I have had, I've had the choice of not taking a drink since the 17th of April of 1974. And I know by some of the people that I've traveled with that uh, that's not a big deal, but I'm going to tell you something that impresses me. <laughs> now, somebody mentioned about my tie. This is my July tie. I bought it when I was drunk. Little did I know... <laughs> Little did I know that I would have an august occasion for wearing it. <laughs> and, and, and Charlie and Wayne, I'm one person that, that doesn't feel that you both look alike. Now, you talk alike, but you don't look alike. I, I, I miss Wayne. Wayne rotated off, and I've had the privilege of, of, of serving as, for part of my time as a East Central Regional Trustee with him. Uh, and, and he was there when I first uh, took over as the trustee up in my area. Uh, somebody said, you know, that with Wayne, they asked him to come in uh, to the board meetings a day early, especially when he has a presentation to make, <laughs> so that we can finish, all finish at the same time. <laughs> now, I served with Charlie, too. So, you see, I really have roots here in Arkansas. Uh, and, and the unique thing and one of the beautiful things about it is that Charlie and I not only served as panel 31 delegates, but we ended up on the same committee, uh, which happens to be the same committee that Ann's on and a significant person in my life who happens to be the, the delegate from Central Michigan, which is where I'm from, also served on that same committee. There's got to be a message in that somewhere. Uh, right. And uh, uh, Charlie, you know, Charlie talks a little bit like uh, Wayne, but you've got to remember that I was a delegate uh, seven years ago, and, and I needed someone that talked slow to me because I wasn't too well wrapped. And I understood what Charlie was saying. I, I'm, I'm one of these chaps back to basics. Uh, I'd like to see us go back to the quill pen, to be quite honest with you. Everything moves a little bit too fast for me. And I am a genuine alcoholic. Uh, I, I just, and, and part of my story will kind of indicate to you how that happened because it was a, one of those amazing introspective type things that one finds out about themselves. And, and I'm kind of triply addicted, I guess. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm an uptight, uh, painfully bashful, Anglo-Saxon, white American, thin-skinned. And on top of that, I'm a lawyer. And, and you know, that... We, there, there's not too many of us, we have a tough time making this program, but I just want to put you on notice, if, if you'll read your history, you'll understand that the third person in this program was a lawyer, so uh, we, we go back a long ways, we started. <laughs> and I have, uh, this is not something that I really enjoy doing, I'd much prefer to have the privilege of sitting out there and listening to one of you share your strength, hope, and experiences. Uh, and you would think because of my profession that it would be a natural, but it isn't. I'm basically, a, 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 as I say, as I say, painfully bashful person, and, and, and I have some difficulty in getting started. And my story really isn't that interesting. You know, that, that's the difficulty I have. I come here, and I know of some of the people that you have here, and I've heard some of the sh stories that have been shared here. And uh, my really, my story is so uninteresting that I'll pro I'm going to tell you the exciting part of it so it won't fleet by you. 
And as a matter of fact, I try to tell a few corny jokes. Now, uh, they're really cornball, and they've been around a long time, and I'm sure that maybe you've heard some of them, uh, but they're important to me, and I tell them because they're an important part of my life. And, uh, and it wasn't until I learned, as Ann said, not to take myself so seriously that I started uh, functioning in this program and, and started to, to really understand what sobriety was all about. Uh, I, I was born in, in, in Newark, New Jersey, so you know I didn't have a hell of a lot going for me coming out of the wolf. As a matter of fact, there was a time in my life when I thought there was no redeeming factor about Newark, New Jersey at all until I happened to reread and, and remember our history and go down and visit our archives and, and recall that, that Bill W. wrote uh, the beginnings of our big book in an office in Newark, New Jersey. So now at least I feel there's some redeeming factors about Newark, New Jersey. Uh, my dad was a full-blown alcoholic. He died a full-blown alcoholic. Uh, I was kind of dropped in Newark because we were on the move. You know, he was, he, he was in the old days before Alcoholics Anonymous came around, and I predate Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I guess the, the way people survived at, at being full-blown alcoholics is they, they did the geographical move, and my dad did it quite often. And so I have no conscious rec uh, recollection of, of, of Newark at all. Uh, I'm going to tell you a few things about me that, that, that age is taken care of and it may be hard to envision. Uh, at one time I was really skinny. <laughs> I was a scrawny kid. Uh, uh, I had wall-to-wall -wall freckles. I wore wire glasses long before they were in vogue. My ears stuck out and they still do. I hung my head to the side and I was painfully bashful. I wore short pants uh, longer than anybody in my block wore short pants. And then I graduated to something that I know some of you may recall. I see a few gray heads around here. Some may be premature, Harlan. <laughs> but I graduated to knickers. And, and they weren't the ordinary kind of knickers. They were the corduroy knickers. You know, those are the kind of pants you wear where people hear you before they ever see you. <laughs> and, you know, the socks were always falling down, and, and, and I was painfully bashful, and I was a scrawny kid. And, and you know, one of the things that kind of is funny, you, you grow up and, 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 and you get sober into this program, and, and, and you start feeling good for yourself. And, and you know, I always envisioned uh, that, you know, I was the ugly duckling. Uh, I was the, the ugly kid on the block. And uh, you start feeling good about yourself, and, and maybe you aren't as bad. You think you aren't as bad as you, you used to be in all that business. Well, here several years ago, I went out to California and visited my sister who lives out there, and she kind of brought out the, the family albums about when we were kids, and I kind of looked at those, and, and I'm here to tell you that I was just as ugly as I thought I was. <laughs> And my sponsor tells me on a regular basis that I haven't improved a hell of a lot. And I understand that. I'm willing to accept that today. Anyways, as I indicated to you, my dad was a full-blown alcoholic, and as a result of that, we moved quite a bit. And, and really, uh, uh, I never completed one grade in one school 
in my life until my senior year in high school. And as a result of that kind of experience early in my childhood, besides the fact that I was uh, physically a, a, a scrounge, uh, scroungy, yeah, I was scroungy too, <laughs> scrawny kid, uh, I started developing some very uh, significant uh, imperfections in my, in my development in, in terms of my knowledge and information. And it went a little bit like this. Uh, I would be in a school system, we'll say in Pittsburgh, which I had lived for a while, and we would be there uh, for a couple months or three months, and pretty soon my dad would come home drunk, and uh, pretty soon late at night there would be the arguments with my, money, my mother and uh, something about bills and the rent not getting paid and this and that, and, and the next thing you know, uh, we would uh, be bundled up and we would be in a car and we'd be moving to another point. And... Uh, the school system that I was leaving, uh, I would be in English or I would be in math, and an English teacher would say, well, next week we'll talk about pronouns, or the math teacher would say, next week we'll be talking about the multiplication table. And we'd move to another area, and I'd go to that school, and I'd go into class, and I'd sit down, and I would find out in their English class or in their math class that they had already talked about Pronouns, or they had already talked about the multiplication table. And I sat there with this huge boy. And being bashful, I was afraid to go up and say anything to my teacher that I didn't know this information. It's not like today. You know, those teachers in those days were a little more matronly, and many of them weren't married. And, and you know, that was a built-in deal for a guy like me that was painfully bashful and scrawny-looking with wall-to-wall freckles and wire glasses and ears that stuck out and hung my head in the side. And I was really able to develop one of the alcoholic traits, which is this hang dog, poor Jack. You know, we have an ability, at least this alcoholic, and I can only speak for myself, have a real ability to ingratiate ourselves uh, to people and to have people feel sorry for ourselves, at least for quite a while. And uh, in those days, you know, I'd get that pathetic look about me, and, and but I was a super polite guy. I was a guy that stayed after class and did the blackboards and, and brought the apple into the teacher and yes ma'am and no ma'am and all that kind of business. And, and I literally survived as a result of, of being a super polite kid and a super nice guy, and, and I was no trouble. I was the guy that sat in the corner and, and, and pretended like he knew what was going on. But all the time inside of my gut, I realized that I was developing these senses of inadequacy, the, the sense of not knowing, the sense of really feeling that I should ought know what the other kids were talking about. And this progressed along with it. And I have to be very careful about that today in my life uh, because I think sobriety is, uh, uh, is the ability to function. I think that's what sobriety is all about, to be ma of maximum benefit. And that's what the big book says, be of maximum benefit to the God of my understanding and my fellow man. And that doesn't mean just in this program. Uh, anyhow, we moved quite a bit. And uh, uh, I, 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 I continued to grow up despite myself. Uh, and I finally ended up in, in, in Detroit, Michigan, uh, in my high school years. Uh, and I got to be 17 years of age. And this was right after World War II, and there was still a, uh, it was when the, the Iron Curtain was coming down over in Europe and the Russians were all doing their thing and, and there was uh, 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 still a sense of patriotism in this country. Now, at this point, I had become 100, 
and 23-pound weakling. And uh, uh, one of the amazing things that happened, I think, in, uh, of alcoholics, and more, more particularly this one, is that we, we don't say no very often. We're joiners. We join anything. And a group of guys that were in high school, the, the kind of the macho type, uh, one day uh, came by and said to me, uh, let's go join the Marine Corps Reserve. Jeez. Now, you know, the only people that I had known that were Marines was an uncle of mine who was about six foot four and looked like a halfback on the Chicago Bears or, or John Wayne that we saw in the movie or Audie Murphy or somebody like that. And I certainly didn't fit that description. But, you know, just the idea that these people thought that I was worthy of joining the Marine Corps really amazed me. And I just couldn't say no. Now, I'm going to tell you something. They have the same the same recruiting uh, billboard today as they had, four, well, not quite that long, 30 years ago. And if you go down and you'll see it, and there'll be a, a picture of a sharp, tough-looking Marine in his dress blues, and it'll say, join the Marines, we need a few good men. Now, that word fuel, few, is in bold print and underlined. And and that means a select group, you know. That doesn't mean everybody. Not like AA. <laughs> but all of a sudden, I found myself on a streetcar. Now, that shows you how old I am. On a streetcar in Detroit, heading down to the Broadhead Armory, the Naval Armory, with the idea of joining the Marine Corps Reserve as a 123-pound weakling. And about halfway down there, I had my first sense of impending doom. (laughs) I realized that I was in a no-win situation. Now, one or two things could happen to me. I could go down there and go through it all and have them end up saying to me what I think they would and what I knew in my heart was, I'm sorry, you're not one of those few good men that we need which would reaffirm in my heart that sense of inadequacy that I already felt. Or the flip side of the coin would be that they'd take me, and then I knew we were in trouble. (laughs) Well, just to show you the sad state of our national defense system at that time, they took me, and I knew we were in trouble. And along came, and I, and I survived in the Marine Corps the same way. I, along came the Korean conflict. The long arm of Uncle Sam grabbed me and brought me in. And I was still the 123-pound weakling, and I went to Paris Island boot camp. And I survived in the Marine Corps the same way I'd survived all my life, by being a super polite, yes sir, no sir, kind of guy. Now, I really hadn't changed. And I can't understand how, and to this day, how the hell I made it, but I did. Uh, and I can remember one of the things, I'm here as a result of my very best thinking, and I have to be careful about that. <laughs> because I can remember when I came out of boot camp and I made my first leave home, you know, they pump you up. They really believe you're Superman. And I can remember, you know, God takes care of drunks like me, I'm going to tell you, and I appreciate it. Because I'm going to tell you, I walked through that 
through that uh, uh, that airport in Charleston, South Carolina, man, and I was swinging and swaying, and I had that old chip in my shoulder, and I was just waiting for somebody to knock it off so I could clean his clock and really show him what I learned. And thank God no one did, because I'm sure they'd have wiped the floor up with me, and and I my whole image would have been blown right off at the beginning. Anyhow, I survived that, and I ended up, uh, the Korean uh, conflict, of course, occurred, and I ended up... Uh, uh, going to uh, uh, going to Korea, and uh, and actually in, at, at at Camp Pendleton in in, in uh, uh, California was when I first had my first blackout. Now I'm going to tell you something. Uh, you know I know there's people in this program that come in and have their first drink at age 14, 15, whatever it is, or age 19, 20, and they instantaneously know they're alcoholic. Now, I'm not one of those. I mean, I worked hard to get in this program. You know, it's tough being a good drunk. I'm going to tell you, at least for me, and I can only speak for myself. And uh, uh, I can, and, and I really didn't like booze. I had to learn. I didn't like it. My, I was around when I was a kid. My dad was a full-blown alcoholic. The beer was there, and I really didn't like it. But all of a sudden, I was in the Marine Corps, and who the hell wants to go into combat with a guy that doesn't drink? I mean, you know that. You're taking your life in your hands, and you've got to be tough. And uh, I was afraid to, to tell my uh, fellow constituents, uh, my comrades in arms, that I really liked hot chocolate. <laughs> I think I might have been in trouble. So I forced myself to like it. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I drank that damn stuff, and I didn't like the taste of it, but man, it did something to me. When that thing went down and hit my gut and exploded, all of a sudden, something happened. Now, I resisted that, and I went overseas, and, and, and I ended up, and, and I know that, uh, uh, that my good friend back there will get a kick out of this because he's heard the term, and maybe some of you have. Uh, there's a term called the, the half-assed Marine. Well, you're looking at one. But I want you to understand, we were surrounded. I was not running. But I got what they call that million-dollar wound. And this is why, and this is part of my story, which says that I'm not... That's why I have trouble sitting, in case you didn't know. I excuse myself a lot. But, but I want you to know that this is why I consider myself, at least one of the reasons why I probably did not end up duly addicted... Even though I, I in, in those times in the in the in the 50s, the other drugs were simply not around. But when I got wounded, a corpsman came up, and and they immediately want to give you morphine. And somewheres I had read before I went overseas that there were a lot of returning servicemen from World War II that had become addicted to morphine through no fault of their own. Because in those days, as soon as you got wounded, they'd want to give you the morphine, and they really didn't monitor it, and they'd almost give it to you indiscriminately. You asked for it, they'd give it to you. And so as a result of that, a lot of chaps came back uh, addicted to it and, and, and had problems. And I had read that, or somebody had told me about it. I don't know where I ever received that information. Here I was, an 18-year-old punk kid. I was wounded. I was up in the front lines. I was scared out of my wits. And uh, uh, this corpsman comes up. And he wanted to give me a shot of morphine, and, and I took the first reflection or introspection into my character at that time, and I said to myself, White House, do you have whatever it is 
not to become addicted to morphine? Do you have the moral character or the willpower or whatever it is not to become addicted to morphine? And I concluded that I didn't have whatever it took not to become addicted to morphine. So I refused it. And I said, no. I said, I'll be manageable. I won't raise any hell with you. Uh, just please don't give it to me because I'm afraid that it will have bad effects on me. Now, the peculiar thing about that sense of introspection or that fleeting moment of wisdom that I received is that I never took and translated that when it came to the beverage alcohol. It never dawned on me that I was dealing with the same dynamic in terms of, of the fact that, that I could become addicted to it. And I, and I never thought about that until I got into this program and got sober and stayed sober. At this time, I really don't envision, even though I had my first blackout, that I had a problem with booze. Uh, I came off the, pr- uh, the front lines. I had dysentery. I weighed less than 100 pounds. I, I, w- I ended up being sent back to uh, uh, Great Lakes Naval Hospital, and I spent six months in the hospital there. Uh, and then I was finally was able to get liberty. And, and that's when I kind of benchmarked when my, I really got started getting in the progression of the disease of alcoholism. Now, here I am at Great Lakes Naval Hospital, which is sandwiched in between Milwaukee and Chicago. Now, I mean, I'm telling you about Liberty Towns, baby. I mean, that's where the action is. And here I am. I came out. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I was a, I came back from the front lines, and I had, I, I got hit early. I didn't stay long. Uh, and, and I came back, and I had one row of ribbons with one battle star, and I was a PFC. No, yeah, I was a PFC. No, I was a corporal. Now, don't laugh about corporals. You know, they've had a great impact on the world on occasion. But but I came back, and, and, and I started making liberty. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I was I was still, I was about probably about 118-pound weakling at this time, and I really progressed a lot. And, and, I, and, and I met up with a couple swab jockeys and a couple of my comrades, but they were all these football players, and we'd start making liberty in, in Milwaukee and, and Chicago, and, and it was early after the war got started, and the American public was really hungry for some heroes. And 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 I used to go in there, and, and uh, geez, you know, I they, they want to know about it, and I'd start telling about it, and I found out that, geez, garnish it a little bit here and garnish it a little bit there, and I found out that if I had another battle star and maybe another row of ribbons and another chevron, and, and you know, all of a sudden... I became a Sergeant York and an Audie Murphy uh, rolled up into a neat little package and a John Wayne. And that's when it, and, and, the, and, the, and the drinks just flowed. You know, the drinks just flowed. And, and White House was there to take it all in. And, uh, you know, the transformation that I went through, I mean, I really started believing it. You know, I started believing I was really winning the war. And, and, uh, and, and that start, that, that crazy thinking that gets initiated and you carry on through your life. You, you get out of touch with what reality is. Anyways, I came back from over, I came back, uh, out of the service. Uh, I continued my drinking. Some real bizarre behavior. Uh, and not really bizarre, but I, I did, uh, you know, like all of us did. No different than probably anyone else here. Uh, and I came out of the service and I went, uh, back home in Detroit. And, uh, you know, the next great thing for an alcoholic, uh, you know, there's two great tragedies for an alcoholic. Tragedy number one is, is not getting what he wants, and tragedy number two is getting what he wants. <laughs> and, I, and I came back, and, and of course, the, the great thing that, that alcoholics uh, like to do, at least, at least I did, and I came out of the service, is, you know, you need that time to acclimate yourself back in civilian life. 
Boy, you can really play that one for a long time. I think about seven years in my case. <laughs> and occasionally, even now. And, uh, and what I did is I came back and I used the same system that I used before. I went back into college. And, and you know, I was a returning serviceman and everybody felt sorry for me and I was wounded. And the poor Jack. And, and I played that role and, and I was able, I found I was able to survive. Now I'm going to tell you something. I'm no Phi Beta Kappa. I'm going to tell you that. I, I'm no heavy in the intellect up here, but I'm here as a result of my very best thinking and that's what concerns me. And I progressed along. <laughs> And I progressed along. And then I went, and then I went on. You know, we never stop. We never stop. We gotta keep, keep going. I, I think there was a time in my life when I thought it might not be a bad idea to be a professional student. I mean, hell, I had the GI Bill, you know, and then, and, and I could, uh, had the war stories and I had a lot of things going for me. And I ended up going to, uh, uh law school and, and I'm gonna tell you, the dean was never so glad to see my class graduate. We were all returning veterans and, uh, uh, it was a bad, it was a really a, a, a bad group. Uh, anyhow, we finally got through, and uh, by this time I still don't believe I had a drinking problem, and I was working for a company at that time, and uh, for some reason or other, I had, they had been good to me while I was going to college, and I figured, well, the nice thing for Jack to do is to be good to them. I really didn't have anything else to go to. And uh, they decided to transfer me out to the West Coast. Now, at this time... Uh, I was principally a beer drinker, and uh, uh, I went out to San Francisco, the city by the bay. Now, I'm going to tell you something. In Michigan, in those days, number one, you could not drink on Sunday, and number two, uh, you couldn't charge it. And, and I went to San Francisco, and I found out there's a little thing called a, a plastic card that said Bank America card. And and I found out they drank 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I said, Eureka, I have found the promised land. <laughs> and I often contend that if I ever passed over, and I'm sure, and I did, and I know it, but if, if, if there was a time in my life when I crossed over whatever that line is that they claim we cross over to become alcoholic, uh, I tripped, stumbled, or crawled over it when I was in San Francisco. And, you know, I got into all that sophisticated drinking. I hated martinis. I learned to like martinis because everybody else drank martinis. Plus, I, I only drank martinis because I liked anchovy olives. You know. And I, and the white nuns and the, the champagne and the ramus fizzes and all that sophisticated kind of drinking. And then the weird things started happening to me. Like, I couldn't remember getting home and I didn't know whose car I had and I didn't know where I, where I, why I was where I was and da 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 da. And on goes the beat that we all know about. And, you know, all of a sudden, White House thinks, we're in trouble. And, and I started realizing that things were coming unglued in my life. Something wasn't right. Something wasn't functioning properly. And at that time, my company was going through a merger, so that was naturally the reason why things weren't going right. The company's going through a merger. That's why I couldn't, I was drinking more than I should. And I made the brilliant deduction that really what I needed to do was to get away from this San Francisco wine and roses bit. And go back to Michigan, go back to Stroh's and Pfeiffer's beer, get back to basics. That's an intelligent, isn't that intelligent? Very rational. And so I picked up my marbles and went back to Michigan. Now the trouble, I, I like, a, and there's a person around by the name of Wino Joe, and one of the comments that I remember hearing him say one time is the trouble uh, of, of when you move an alcoholic from point A to point B is that he's there. And, and I moved from point A to point B, and I was there. 
And you know, we're never satisfied, at least this alcoholic is never satisfied, because when I got back there, and you think I wanted to get back for the basics and the Stroh's beer and the Pfeiffer's beer, I proceeded to teach all my friends how the hell they drank in San Francisco. And, you know, so we're never satisfied. Well, I'm fast approaching the exciting part of my, uh, of, of my uh, existence here in my drinking career, so uh, hang in with me. Uh, anyways, and, and also ice cream comes pretty soon, doesn't it? Boy, that's okay. <laughs> On, we'll move. All right. Uh, I ended up uh, down in, in, in a small town called Monroe, Michigan, which is halfway between Toledo and Detroit. I ended up down there as the second highest law enforcement officer in the county. I was chief assistant prosecutor. And, you know, after all, I had all the great burdens of, of the community on my shoulder. And and uh, uh, and I had great decisions to make. And I had great responsibility. And at this point, I was really getting into the drinking. I was in a family situation at the time, and I can remember every night going home. I didn't drink out in the community because that was unacceptable in a small community. They can, they can kind of watch you, you know, and I didn't like that. So I'd, I'd take the bottle home and then, of course, I was still nursing that war wound. It's only 15 years later, but I got a lot of problems with that, and I got a lot of adjustments to make. And I had to wind down, and that's what I did as I would get into the cups. And, you know, I'm really jealous of alcoholics today. They really have it made in one regard separate than me. Uh, and it went kind of like this. We're getting into the exciting part of my, of my drinking. And, and uh, you know, I'd get home, and I'd start sucking on the jug in preparation for dinner, which never happened. And, and then what would happen is that I'd wake up about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, you know, today you can wake up at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning and you can see one of those TV evangelists and you'll think that you've gone to heaven. <laughs> but in those days, when you woke up at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, it would be nothing but salt and pepper on the screen, you know. And, and you knew it was late and the TV was off and, and you lay there and you'd listen to see if the family was awake and they'd be in bed and... And, and, and you kind of wake up and you look around and, you know, all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden that, that fear came over you. All of a sudden you, you, you started shaking and all of a sudden you started remembering all the promises you made that you didn't keep and da 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 da. And, 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 and the guilt that came over you and the depression and all that. And, and you needed to fix. Now, now this is excitement number one. And I don't know whether anybody else ever experienced this or not. I really don't know. But it's a biggie in my life. Now, I'm in the living room, and whatever booze is available is in the kitchen. And my family's asleep. And I want to get there. So I get up, and I start for the kitchen. Aha! Now, if you don't think that's tough work, you're crazy. That is a tough job when you got to go from here to the back of that room to get to the kitchen. And, and I don't know whether you know what that's all about, but what it was all about is that I didn't want to hit the creek in the floor because I knew that sucker was wired for sound. And if I hit that, the lights would go on and the sirens would go on and the wife would be up and say, aha, we caught you. Now, I told you excitement number two would quickly follow excitement number one. And again, I don't know whether anyone else ever went through this or not, but you get to the kitchen in the refrigerator and, and, and you know, you gotta get in the refrigerator, and, and I don't know whether anybody else again ever did this, but you know, it's tough. But did you ever try to open a refrigerator door without the clicking noise? <laughs> now I'd take towels, and I'd wrap my body around that, and I'd just squeeze that baby ever so easy, you know. 
And then the panic that I would get when I opened the door about whether there was anything in there after I get there. And then all of a sudden there's something in there and you take the swallow and the explosion and you go through the ping pong syndrome, as I call it. You, you, you get yourself back together. And, you know, I make those great promises. You know, this, uh, the third step, it says, uh, oh, that's a tradition. Third step over here. Made a decision to turn my life and my will over to the care of God as we understand him. And everybody used to tell me in the program when I first came in, all you got to do is make a decision. Not for White House. I'm going to tell you, I used to make the greatest decision in the world between two and four in the morning. And usually one of the decisions was that God get me through tonight and I won't drink tomorrow. And, and, and what I had to do when I got into this program is, is translate that action and uh, that decision into action, which meant not taking that first drink, which meant following the 12 steps of recovery that, that, uh, that we all know about. And, and uh, another thing that I used to go through, and I don't know, I, I got about three little things that I want to tell you because they're significant in my life. I, I, you ever get into the line? You know, lawyers come by it naturally to begin with, and, and then we start, you know, we tell the little white lie, and you know it's a little white lie. And then you tell a little white lie to somebody, and it's a little white lie, but he knows it's a lie. Then you tell a lie, and you know it's a lie, he knows it's a lie, and you know it's a lie. And then you get one step further, which is where I got, is I tell a lie which I knew was a lie. And I tell it to this person who knew it was a lie. But I started believing it. And that's when you start losing touch with that reality that we and the inappropriateness of our behavior. Uh, the other thing that I uh, that that, that kind of happened was, you know, I lived in a small town. I, I used to have a, a schematic worked out. I'm here as a result of my very best thinking about, uh, you know, there was a number of liquor stores there, and a moving target's harder to hit. So I'd have liquor store A on Monday, liquor store B on Tuesday, liquor store uh, C on Wednesday. Uh, but all of a sudden you go into the liquor store and the guy says to you, you want the same thing you had yesterday? <laughs> and your schedule gets screwed up. And you start saying, now wait a minute, what day of the week is it? And then the crowning blow, and I really was getting into the chronic stages of my alcoholism at this point, and, 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 I, was, and I was starting to get into real trouble. And, and I knew, and, and I was getting, and people were protecting me because they felt sorry for me. You know, I, I love those people. They mean well, but some of them, they just don't understand. And, and uh, uh, the, the critical point came, is one day I came in, and I was a 24-hour day drinker, an early morning drinker. Uh, and, and, and I was in my office as chief assistant prosecutor. Now, that's a big deal with my Kelly. I don't know about how down here. But I'm sitting there behind my big desk. And there's two guys sitting on the other side who happen to be IRS agents who are reading me my rights. Now, even I knew there's something wrong with that. Even I knew that the scenario wasn't the way it's supposed to be. And then the final coup d'etat, which is is, is that, that great humbling experience, that great humility that happens in a person's life, that bottom that we all come to. And it came, in my case, by the way, of, a, of an order for the Supreme Court of the state of Michigan, which says, thou shalt not practice your profession for 120 days. And they print it on the front page of your local newspaper. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That got my attention. And I knew I was in deep trouble. And I guess if there's any kind of a message that I have that I'd like to share with anybody here this evening is that if there's somebody out there that's having a struggle with getting sober and staying sober, if there's ever anyone out there that just doesn't feel that he can turn that corner 
and, and, and start living and enjoying the benefits of this program, I wish to say to you, you keep coming back because that's all I did. I, I finally got to a point where I knew I was in trouble. There was a local lawyer in this town who had been known as the drunk lawyer for years and years. He didn't drink anymore. He went to those meetings. And somebody suggested I call him. And I called him up and said, O.J., I, I need help. And there was a silence at the other end and the kind of laugh that only us alcoholics can give to another one. Like, I've been watching and waiting for you. And he took me to my first meeting on January 12th of 1973, which you will note is not the date of my last drink. I was a slow learner. You know, it reminds me of the old joke. It's been around for AA, you know, and, 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 I, and I, I came in here, you know, and I'd let people, places and things push my button. I'd get a little bit of sobriety, and, and then for some reason, damn you, I'll kill me, you know, and, and I went all through that. And I really didn't think I would ever make this program. And, 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 and I kept coming back, and, and I was making a lot of meetings, and finally my sponsor said, you know, it might be a good idea if you came back to the place from one side. I was going to all those other meetings out there. You know, you can sit down and play the game within this program. I was going, nobody could accuse me of not going to meetings, but I was going all the way up into the northeast part of Detroit, and I could sit down and, and talk the talk, but I wasn't walking the walk, and I was killing myself. And finally, my sponsor suggested, you know, you have to get back here to the place from whence you came, back to your home group, the people that know you. And, and, and it was that dynamic, and I finally listened to that. I had troubles with the third step, uh, uh, or the second step. Came to believe that power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. She had no trouble with the first step. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Now, when I say that, I say it very cavalierly, and I don't mean that. What I meant is I had no trouble with the second part of the first step. Even I knew my life was unmanageable. The difficulty, and I thought that booze had a part of it. But I really thought, you know, I went, part of my life was I asked my alcoholic dad to come live with me. Now, isn't that great? Isn't I told you I'm here as a result of my very best thinking. And I can remember saying to my dad, Dad, I've got to get off this booze. And dad gave me some very sage alcoholic advice. He put his arm around me and said, Son, when your problems go away, you won't drink so much. Now, isn't that sage advice? So I proceeded to drink for another 14 months waiting for my problems to go away. Now, and, 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 and you see that we, we get to that point. And then and the second step came to leave the power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. You know, I knew, I, 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 what I was afraid of, I wasn't even going to make AA. I, I wasn't winning in AA. And, and I, I kept coming back and I wanted a piece of the action. I remember a speaker uh, at, at an anniversary in, in my home group, and and he talked about and I love the theme of of the uh, the, the 1980 uh, 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 international conference, the joy of living, and and he talked about uh, uh, the sheer joy of, of biting into a uh, a mounds bar, you know, and I wanted to feel that I wanted to feel that sense of joy. I, I later was able to introduce him as a speaker, and I said, I'm one up on you today, baby. I said I can. I can cry with joy uh, just thinking about fighting into a mountain. And that's what this program provides to you. And, 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 and when I came to that, I, I, I knew that if I was going to get sober, it was going to be through God's grace, but I had so done such a perfect job through my drinking career of destroying that relationship that I, uh, that, that, that I finally, uh, my sponsor said to me and, and brought me in and he said, listen, you know, one of the things that, that, uh, he said, number one, White House, uh, the best thing you got to remember is don't think 
You know, get up in the morning and put your feet to the floor and report for duty. And, and I believe that. And, and I'm here as a product of that kind of basic idea of working the 12 steps. And, and he said, you know, the, the thing that you have to remember is start forgiving yourself. And somehow that clicked. That doesn't mean that I, I cannot be responsible for my past actions. But I've got to re- recognize that that is the product of my, of my alcoholic behavior. And I've got to start living a different kind of life. And as, as Charlie was mentioning, uh, after we get that, through that first three steps, we have a, uh, the four through eleven gives us some rules and guidelines, uh, to go by. And I had to start practicing those and doing those things. And then we have the opportunity of practicing the twelfth step. I heard a guy one time say, you know, the first step adds years to your life and the other eleven adds life to your years. And that meant something to me. That meant something to me. You know, you don't think yourself into good living, you live yourself into good thinking. That's another thing that I heard. And I, and I, and I, and I like another saying that I heard around these tables is, you know, uh, uh, life is a mystery to live, not a problem to solve. And, and, and when I started lightening up and I started realizing it and I started doing the things, but you know, I was having this flipping and sliding. And, and this old joke that I was about to tell you, and I'm going to tell you now whether you like it or not, but it's an old one. And it's important to me, and it's a story about the three people in a room, the, the, the normal person, the alco- uh, or the uh, schizo, and the, and the alcoholic. You know, And the normal person walks out that door, and he gets hit over the head, and he comes in, back in. He knows he's been hit over the head. He goes out that door. The schizo goes out. He gets hit over the head. He comes back in, and he shakes his head a little bit, and he says, well, maybe that didn't really happen. He goes out. He gets hit over the head. He knows that it happened. He goes out. The alcoholic, he goes out, he gets hit over the head, he comes back in. He goes out, he gets hit over the head, he comes back in. He goes out, he gets hit over the head, he comes back in. He goes out and the guy isn't there, so he sits down and waits for him. I heard an ad, you know, the other day for cellular phones, and it said, you know, you can make calls between your calls. And I, I immediately snapped in because I used to drink between drinks. You know, I, I identify with that. I identify with it. You know, I liked AA meetings even when I didn't like AA meetings. Now, I don't know whether that makes any sense to you, but it makes sense to me. But I finally came to believe, and I can't, I, I, you know, the old saying, you bring the bod and the mind will catch up. And that's exactly what happened. And I, and I made a move. I stayed in my hometown. I, and, 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 and Charlie talked about getting your self-dignity back and your self-respect. And here I had been, uh, you know, I had, you know, I'd been disciplined by the state bar in my town and they put it on the front page of the newspaper. And my sponsor had enough wisdom to realize that I had to deal with that. And I stayed there and I got reinstated and I started doing the right things and I started paying my bills. And I started having miracles happen in my life despite me. And I remember one time I was so unwrapped, I called up my sponsor. I was crying on the phone. I didn't even know what I was crying about. And he said, is there a file in front of you? And I said, yes. He said, pick it up and open it up and start doing something. Now, I needed that kind of simple instruction. And by the, that afternoon, it was, you know, I didn't know, know what the hell was going on. I was happy as a lark. I was up here. I was going to a meeting. And, so I, and I, the longer I'm around this program, the more I understand being involved in this AA process. And I think that, you know, I heard Jim Estelle, Class A trustee, and somebody, Ann was mentioning about Class A, and he, and he gave his rotation talk last year, and, and what he talked about that I liked and I heard was that, you know, we belong to a fellowship that's self-adjusting. We have a self-adjusting fellowship. We never get too far off the target. 
And I think in our sobriety, if we, if we, if we, if we get to the basics, if we have a home group and we have a sponsor and we practice these principles in all our affairs, those promises will start unfolding for you. And the next thing you know, I found myself a GSR. Next thing you know, I found myself a district committee man. Next thing you know, I found myself elected a delegate. All these I felt unworthy for and inadequate for. I feel inadequate in the position I'm in now as a regional trustee. And I went there and, and, and uh, Wayne and I were sharing some of that today. And yet I've learned in this program that, that, that God will provide for me what I cannot provide for myself as long as I keep myself in that process. And that means making meetings and doing the things that follow the instructions that you people give me. I, I, there's one last story, and I always have kind of mixed emotions because I know it's getting very close. Yes, we've got to wind this down. Uh, and, and, and I have mixed emotions about telling you this, but, but I'm going to tell you because it's important to me and it's a very significant event in my life. And, and it kind of gives you a, an, a, a, an idea of... of of my thinking process anymore. It's always AA. It's become a part of my life. Here in 1985, I had a very serious illness. Now, I'll just show you, I'm, I'm here as a result of my very best thinking. Uh, you know, I, I ended up with this huge bellyache. I mean, it was a terrible bellyache. It was so terrible that I couldn't stand, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't sit, I couldn't do anything. I, I felt like I had a, an explosion inside my gut. And I really thought that it wasn't as bad as it really was. You know, I, I've gotten sober and I, I hate being sick. And, and I really thought in my own mind that I just had the stomach flu and it really wasn't that bad. But on the third day and in and, and the middle of the night, if I had been a 38 there, I think I'd have shot myself. That's how bad it was. But to show you the alcoholic kind of responsibility, I waited till my wife woke up before we went to the hospital. You know, I never thought. And, and, and there was a and there was a uh, emergency room almost within walking distance where I live. I'm here as a result, and that's after being sober a few years. <laughs> Anyhow, what happened is I ended up with a very serious. I had a diverticulitis, and uh, and later on they discovered that that my appendix had exploded, and 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 so I ended up in the hospital for an extended period of time. And the doctor finally came in and said, "Look, White House, we have to go in and 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 we have to find out what's wrong." And you're going to have a, a colostomy. Now, I don't know whether everybody knows what a colostomy is, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a bag on the side, and, and, and that's what you, uh, you do do with. <laughs> and, and, uh, but he said, the good news is going to be temporary, we hope. And, and, you know, at this point, you start making some really significant surrenders in your life. And, uh, okay, I ended up with this, and, and, and the good news is that eight weeks and three days later, now, the peculiar thing about this is you purge yourself from, from this bag once a day. You don't go the normal way. And, and so for eight weeks and three days, I did it that way. And then they went back in and resectioned me. And then what happens is when you get resectioned, hopefully the process starts up again. You know? and, and, and so you lay there because they're not going to let you out until that process starts working. And for me, it took a long time. I'm a slow learner, I guess, or whatever. <laughs> but geez, it went on. I was there five or six days, and I started wondering if this damn thing was ever going to operate or ever work. And all of a sudden, about 11.03, <laughs> on the night of April 16, 1985, I blew wind. Now, that's advance notice. 
But I'm going to tell you, I was elated. Now, the next day is April 17, 1985. At approximately 8.07, the dramatic urge struck. And I was ambulatory at the time, and I got up and I went in and sat on the throne. It felt good not kneeling at it. And I had one of the greatest spiritual experiences known to man. Now, while this whole process is occurring, I'm unrolling the toilet paper. And I start folding it up in a nice little, you know. And then the great revelation. Now, I told you I was a slow learner. And at that point in time, I was, what, 50-some years old. And given that I was a slow learner at potty training, I probably didn't start going to the bathroom on my own until I was three or four. But for approximately 51 or better years, I had been doing this natural process on a regular basis, I want you to know. And I sat there, and all of a sudden I said to myself, which hand do I use? (laughs) Now, I'm going to tell you something. There is a moral to that story. I went eight weeks and three days without doing it, and I couldn't remember which hand I used. Now, what do you think would happen to me if I didn't go to meetings? That's the first thing that popped into my head. What the hell would happen to me if I didn't go to meetings? And I just had to share that with you. Now, as if that isn't enough, that happened to me my AA birthday. And if that isn't enough, at about approximately 3.30 on that same day, I received a telephone call from my delegate at the General Service Conference in New York to inform me that I had been elected the East Central Regional Trustee. Now, what do you ever do for an encore? <laughs> Listen, I want to I want to thank all of you. I want to thank the committee that invited me. You know, this is kind of interesting. I was scheduled to come down here in, in what was it, December or January, and that terrible storm you had down here, which is nothing to us up there, canceled your assembly. And I was telling Charlie and Wayne and a few others yesterday when I arrived, I said, you know, this is the most peculiar dynamic for me to come some uh, 1,700 or 2,000 miles south to get cooled off. We've had over 100 degree weather for the last six days up in Michigan, and we haven't had but a tea drop, uh, a teaspoon of rain since Easter. So this is refreshing for me to come down here and cool off. But it's, it's, it's a real pleasure. I miss, I miss Wayne when he rotated off, and, and he was a good friend of mine. And, but you know, the beauty of AA, the beauty of AA, if you stick in this program and you get involved, you're going to constantly see your friends. Occasions are going to arise, and you're going to see your friends. And, you know, they have a saying in AA, there's no strangers in AA, there's just friends we haven't met. And so I want to thank you for the privilege of being allowed to come here and share a little bit of my strength, hope, and